Hello. Welcome to Mystics and Mulder. We're <laughs> a podcast at the intersection of faith and popular culture. I'm Sarah. She, her. I'm Maeve. She, her. And today we have a slightly different episode than what we usually do, but still a very exciting one. I am so pumped about this. We have abolition apostles with us, Sarah and David. Woo! They're <laughs> National Abolitionist Jail and Prison Ministry from New Orleans, Louisiana, which I learned from y'all's website is the most incarcerated place in the world. I didn't know that. We're so like happy to have you on here and we love what y'all do. Um, so if y'all want to like introduce yourselves and just kind of talk about who you are. My name is David Brazil. Um, and along with Sarah Pritchard, I'm the founding co-pastor of Abolition Apostles. And Sarah, as you said, we founded the ministry in New Orleans. Louisiana tends to trade off with some other states um, for the most, this, the, the honor of being called the most incarcerated place in the world, the dubious honor. The state goes back and forth. Sometimes it's Mississippi, sometimes it's Oklahoma had it. And actually Oklahoma released a number of offenders last year. It seems like in order to have to all the most incarcerated place in the world and went back. But in any event, no matter which state is the most incarcerated, Louisiana, New Orleans is the most incarcerated city um, per capita. So unfortunately that doesn't change. So our ministry uh, was founded in 2019. Uh, we serve at this point over 700 incarcerated people in 30 states across America uh, with the help of about 400 volunteers uh, who help us with pen palling, um, as well as financial solidarity support, visitation, advocacy, and re-entry work. Um, so we're really delighted to be here um, and excited to talk with y'all. Sarah? My name is Sarah Pritchard, and I am the co-pastor and co-founder of Abolition Apostles. David gave a pretty good introduction to our work. I guess the only other thing that I'll say is that we are in the process of developing local chapters in cities across the country. So right now, um, our work is like pretty centralized um, in terms of like David and I and uh, our Louisiana coordinator, whose name is Ashley McKibben, doing a lot of the logistical um, and also organizing work um, for the whole national picture, um, but we're excited that we have nine chapters that are getting started in cities across the country that will um, help to distribute that work a little bit, but also help us um, to do more regional organizing and to support abolitionist organizing that's happening in communities across the country. That's so great. Thank you for that explanation. Um, we are so excited to talk about your ministry. Uh, we, we find it so valuable and so important. And we would like to hear just a little bit, um, if you don't mind, about your spiritual and religious journey and maybe what led you to this ministry. Were you raised in a Christian community? How did you find that your faith intersected with this type of work? Yeah, thank you so much, Maeve. Um, so I'm an adult convert to Christianity. Um, I often say that I, I started out as a commie and now I'm a commie Christian. Um, so, you know, that's always been the framework um, that Christ talks about in Matthew 25 of what we do for the least of these before I was, you know, really a serious believer in the scripture. You know, that was very much my take on how we had to be in the world. 
And uh, my own conversion story intersects with Occupy Oakland and political mobilizations that time and subsequent to that. And uh, in 2015, I received calls a pastor um, and with Sarah, uh, you know, began to pastor a house church in Oakland, California, where we lived. Um, and that pastoral wall, you know, was largely congregational ministry, um, largely with a social justice focus in a non-denominational Christian context. Um, but in 2019, <clears throat> we took a pilgrimage to visit uh, Sarah's pen pal, Luis, who uh, uh, is incarcerated at Calipatria State Prison uh, in the south of California, way south of California, almost to the Mexico border. And um, we basically met Jesus in prison, you know, and, and back to Matthew 25, that's where Jesus says he is going to meet us. He says, you know, um, I was in prison and you came to visit me. He speaks in the first person. Um, and so we found ourselves deeply convicted by that trip. We had been spending a lot of time in progressive, uh, largely white Christian spaces that sort of had a good uh, discourse, a good radical discourse, liberal to radical discourse. Ultimately, over and over again, it just, Jesus wasn't there. And the place where Jesus actually was, was in these, these prisons. Um, so that was really the, the beginning of a spiritual call specifically to the jail and prison ministry um, that led us to close our church and relocate from California to Louisiana. Um, in order to focus exclusively on jail and prison ministry and on a vision of a new ecclesiology with churches that were re in relationship with carceral sites. So, for example, here in New Orleans, we're about two hours away from the Louisiana State Penitentiary called Angola, uh, which is a notorious uh, place that was a, uh, a, you know, a slave plantation in the 1800s, became a site of convict leasing, which is a kind of successor to slavery. Um, and now, you know, black men are still literally growing field crops, including cotton, you know, on this land, uh, overseen by white men on horseback with rifles, just like you see in, in, in the movies. We are in, in to that place and we are to call other people to be in relation to the prisons that, you know, are often in our backyards. Yeah, well, and in terms of my uh, spiritual background, um, I... Um, the daughter of a United Methodist pastor. So I very much grew up in the church uh, and left as a young adult for reasons that include queerness, but also just include like a uh, lack of social justice praxis and that I saw in the church communities that I come from um, or that I grew up in. And I really thought that I was never going to return to the church until really meeting David in 2014 and learning someone whose politics I shared, uh, who was also an artist um, and who was a Christian. And that stirred something inside of me that I think I thought I, I thought was dead, but wasn't. And so it's been really coming into relationship with David and other mentors um, who are seeking to walk a um, costly disciple path that um, has led me back to Christianity. Yeah, and I guess I would just add our understanding of the gospel is aggressively anti-capitalist, anti-white supremacy, anti-patriarchy. It makes it seem like we are some kind of radicals who are maybe reading things into the scripture, but for us, the core and the heart of the scripture. So that's where we're coming from 
and the prison, in addition to being God's call, moment of years of anti-capitalist work and anti-white supremacy work, because anti-white supremacy must be implicit in anti-capitalism in an American perspective, where especially like anti-blackness defines the American context. And so if we could make things work for black folks, they would work for everybody, um, is the short way to put it. And then, you know, within that, the, the highly disproportionate incarceration of Black folks makes prison issues one of the most practical ways to engage and fight against anti-Blackness. Absolutely. Thank you both for sharing your stories. They're so beautiful. And I am really hearing repetition of this greater narrative that we hear in the Bible of leave, leave your land and come do this work for me somewhere else, yep. you know, and I, yeah. that's very representative of, of a greater uh, redemption, greater creative creation story. And I just, oh, I love that. <laughs> and also one other comment that you mentioned, um, the prison in Louisiana is literally named, <laughs> like, people don't know this is literally named after a plantation. And it's like, it's, it's the the obvious parallels and not even parallels like the obvious continuation of slavery is just so blatant and yet the fact that and I consider you know I like to concern myself like hashtag woke like didn't know that until I don't know a few months ago is ridiculous so yeah I just wanted to put that out there that like prison especially PIC uh, prison industrial complex is just slavery by another name you know, it's just been rebranded to look like something else. Yeah, okay. and I guess Thank I you. would add to that, Sarah. That's totally right on. And, you know, it's called Angola because the earliest slaves were taken from the country of Angola, and it's still called Angola, right? So the line is a through line from the 19th century to now. But what you said, you know, also reminds me to say that, you know, we live in Louisiana, which is the Deep South, right? It's, for, you know, the former Confederate States of America. And the way America works, a lot of times uh, the South becomes America's alibi. People can say, oh, well, that's the South. You know, they do things differently in the South. It's really bad down there. But, you know, there's a famous line from Malcolm X where he says, don't talk to me about Mississippi. America is Mississippi. And the reality that, of course, we've been seeing for years, but especially in this year of police violence and uprisings, is that, you know, like, yes, you know, Ahmaud Arbery was, was killed in Georgia. But the um, the Blake shooting was in Kenosha, Wisconsin, right? And like you know, like there's no one place where the police violence against Black folks is like is just there. So we have to confront these issues as national issues and stop saying, "Oh, the South," you know, that's our alibi. Absolutely, absolutely. And you mentioned specifically looking looking at the gospel through kind of a, um, a Matthew 25 lens. Um, but we were wondering what other uh, theologies or, or movements um, do you all kind of um, use as, as a lens to, to kind of frame your work and, and your theologies? Yeah, there are um, a couple of sort of touchstone theologians that um, are really important to us. One is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, who was Lutheran uh, pastor in Germany who resisted the Nazi regime um, and in fact was murdered um, because of his participation in resistance to fascist Germany. We also are 
I think students of James Cone, um, the Black liberation theologian, and agree with his assessment that uh, the main message of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is God's desire for liberation. And we believe that what God's love looks like is liberating us from um, the bondage of sin, uh, which we define as hatred of God and hatred of the neighbor. Those are, I think, two touchstones for us. Um, and then as David said, we are very biblically based. We believe that the scripture is um, a very powerful and indispensable tool. It's too important to forsake as our as a means of grace, as um, children of God, to help in our in um, in our environment of what God wants for us. Yeah, and you know that Sarah did a that's a very good rundown of our theologians, and you also mm -hmm. asked about Sarah the movements. And for us, the you know we really are rooted in the 19th century and pre 19th century abolitionist movement. That is to say, the movement to abolish slavery, particularly in the American context. And you know there are names that are very well known and then less well known. In that you know everybody from Frederick Douglass to uh, William Lloyd Garrison, who's a white man, newspaper publisher who worked closely with uh, with Douglass, but of course also Harriet Tubman and um, John Brown. You know, and all the four people I just mentioned have one thing in common. They were all Christian and they were all not just church going Christians, but deeply gospel based. And all those people were motivated, you know, by their belief in the liberating power of Jesus. I mean, it's, it's really important for us to be on the right side of God's justice. So I would say that movement, the 19th century movement. And then, of course, in the 20th century, the ongoing movement and struggle for black liberation um, that sometimes gets called the civil rights movement. Um, but that name is like a little bit of a misnomer because it's about deeper liberation than just legal um, redress. And also that, you know, it doesn't begin with the Montgomery bus boycott. But when you begin to study the history, um, it's really a through line of struggle and resistance, um, really since Reconstruction. And there, it's subterranean because of white terrorism, basically. Um, but there is amazing stuff. And most of that's church based. Right. Of course, people are familiar with with Dr. King. Um, but he's only one of a, of a galaxy of figures, including Fannie Lou Hamer and many others who are deeply motivated by their faith. And I would just say as an aside, um, Fannie Lou Hamer, who is somebody who should really be studied more deeply. There are a few biographies of, of Fannie Lou, uh, who's famous for saying I was sick and tired of being sick and tired um, and did a lot of heroic stuff and stood up to a lot of, of white terrorism. One of her nemesis was this uh, Senator Eastlake, uh, or excuse me, Eastland of uh, Mississippi, who literally, you know, probably put out assassination attempts on her. And somebody was saying, oh, this guy, he's so awful. And Fannie Lou, Christian that she was, said, you know, the thing is we got to love him, you know? And so I always, and she knew exactly, she was not a sentimental person. <laughs> you know, she knew exactly what she was talking about. So I think that's like a very important word for us when we uh, are meditating on this question of love our enemies and pray for those who despitefully misuse us, especially in this um, season. Take it from Fannie. If she can do that, I can do it is what I'm trying to say. That's wonderful. I, I feel like I have so much research to do and uh, I definitely want to look into Fannie Lou after this. Um, you talked about this a little bit on your podcast episode with um, the Magnificast, but I was wondering if you could discuss the trap of imperial heresy. I hadn't heard of that before, and it really was striking. So we use this language of the imperial heresy to describe the way that 
institutional church has basically been hand in glove with state and imperial power um, for millennia. Um, so, you know, the short version of this history, right, is that after the ministry of Christ in the first century, you have the burgeoning of the early church uh, described in Acts of the Apostles and then in the Apostolic Fathers, you have the primitive communism of Acts 4, where they had everything in common, and a kind of almost utopian vision happening in the middle of the Roman Empire, but made up of the slaves and widows and women, you know, and uh, so soldiers, uh, all kinds of people who are like, a lot of whom are, are kind of riffraff or the lower classes, right? And then later on, you have the um, uh, adaptation of the uh, of the religion of Christianity by the empire, right? And this is the conversion of the emperor Constantine, who uh, won a battle because he saw a cross, at least this is how the story goes, and then converted the empire and um, made the switch from paganism to, to imperial Christianity, which is churches that baptize war, right? Churches that baptize the death penalty, churches that baptize capitalism. We identify that as heresy um, because that's not the gospel. Right. And we used to talk about um, the anti-imperial gospel is a language that we used to use. And then we realized that's not a correct way to talk about it because there is only one gospel. The imperial church has baptized the man of sin, you know, and um, and talk about that. And uh, as much as people have been, you know, sort of talking since 2016 about everything, we're not using the theological resources to talk about, you know, principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness mm -hmm. in high places. And we have to use that language. I'm actually in a class right now called Race, Coloniality and Catastrophe. And for the first few weeks, we we're reading Revelation. And mm -hmm. it is such an anti-imperial text. And so anyone who questions that about the Bible, I would definitely direct them to <laughs> Revelation. Just take yeah. a look because it's very yeah. different, like, you know, how we see it in our popular culture compared to um, thinking about like the context in which it was written. Um, so thank you for that explanation. That was, that was wonderful. We have a church that we pastor called Apostleship that meets on Sundays and we read whole books of the Bible in a season. So we actually spent the beginning of the pandemic studying Revelation together. And I could send you some of those. We recorded all of it. So if you're interested in checking those out. But I also wrote an essay that's about coronavirus, white supremacy, and the book of Revelation, which is all about the anti-imperial reading of the book of Revelation. And in fact, reading Revelation as a prison letter, because John is most, which is a prison. Mm -hmm. right? That is so true. He's exiled. Oh my gosh. I'd never thought of it that way. Yes, please. We would love that. We would love to link to it. Put it on our website. Um, prison ministry, prison abolition, these are always timely topics. Um, liberation is always timely, always relevant. But I was wondering if you could talk about how recent movements and occurrences in our lives, um, you know, Black Lives Matter protests, social media activism, police brutality we've seen month after month, and especially coronavirus, like you were saying, David, you know, how, how that intersects with, um, with the Bible too. If you could think about how these really topical events um, might be impacting conversations about prison abolition and prison ministry. We, as David said, we started our ministry in 2019. Um, this country is the most incarcerated country in the world. Um, and because of the unbroken chain that is the history of the prison system from chattel slavery um, to convict leasing to our current mass incarceration um, system. Because all of that is true, of course, thinking about the abolition of prisons is always timely and relevant. And 
we have, I think, seen uh, an explosive growth in the interest in both abolitionist discourse. So we have things like Miriam Miriam Akaba uh, writing in the New York Times about uh, defunding the police. We have other very well-known abolitionists like suddenly getting published in mainstream publications talking about um, defunding and abolishing the police and prisons. At the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, we were a little bit stymied because prior to the pandemic, our ministry was meeting every week in person. When you know things started to shut down and has only created harsher and um, more inhumane conditions inside, not only because of the risk of contracting, but things that made life inside a little bit more bearable are now shut down. So visitation is out of the question, programs that maybe people from the outside came in. So we were like, oh no, we really need to figure this out because um, we have all these new letters and we need to figure out a new way to connect with people on the outside so that we can connect um, these incarcerated folks with them pals. And I think it was really like God's timing that we should start to host um, an online meeting and also have more of a presence on social media, um, meaning that people nationally could become aware of our work and get involved right before this huge um, explosion in interest and attention to abolitionist issues happen as a result of the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Tony McDade and so many others. It's really been incredible um, to witness um, and to watch really God providing the increase on our ministry in the season. We today are in touch with over 100 people and over 100 people outside who are joining us in this work. Thank you for sharing that story with us. And it's it's so beautiful just to see your ministry flourish like that. Um, yeah, that's incredible. One thing just to like pivot a little bit, you brought up Twitter, but there's also, you know, like media, you know, there are lots of, lots of talk on the news, but also there's in, in even fictional shows um like crime dramas you know first 48 police procedurals true crime documentaries sitcom there's just so much for lack of a better term copaganda you know like cops are are the good guys who put away those those bad guys and now we're all safe and it's okay now you know even the shows that Maeve and I like like Brooklyn Nine-Nine X-Files <laughs> So, and I think too, especially when we're talking about pin pin pals to um, folks who are incarcerated. When when I was first introduced to the concept, it was on like I don't know, twenty twenty or the first forty eight or some true crime documentary show or whatever, mm-hmm. and it's always presented in this way of these really desperate women are like writing to these men it's like oh these poor women like don't know how terrible these men are and they're like they've got them in their clutches oh no it's so 
tragic because like y'all have been saying like these are lifelines between us and our neighbors who are incarcerated and it's such a, a warped such a warped image um so i would just love to hear about y'all's thoughts on on the way the media presents prisons and and the police and even you know writing to pen pals who are incarcerated yeah it's a great question sarah i mean again i think going back to reflections on anti-capitalism and the way that you know in a capitalist system where the media is in the hands of you know moneyed interests corporations and others with uh whose presentations and ideologies are not neutral right and it's always really crucial it's like an obvious thing but it's always crucial to say it again that it see and have seen for decades shows tv shows where cops and law enforcement are the good guys it's really definitely not an accident you know um and so you know that's kind of the first thing to say i'm very interested in the phenomenon of um of true of the way true crime has burgeoned as a sort of a lifelong true crime reader myself and like somebody's very interested in that genre at its best as something that gives us a point of access to human wickedness, uh, which is real, but the way that it has kind of become all that is shown on oxygen now, you know, like, and there's like this feminized true crime thing, which has all happened in the past decade, basically. It's a very strange phenomenon, but I think it kind of relates to the cop show thing because it's like, it provides a combination of, of, of titillation and also like uh, the idea that there are these forces out there, malevolent forces, but they didn't get me, right? And so there's there's some weird thing there, but it's all premised on like, there's this objective force of evilness in the world and it's scary. And like, thank goodness there are people who take care of that. Kind of like the garbage man of the soul. You know, I don't want to think about that stuff, but thank goodness there are these technicians and, you know, the CSI, operatives and so on who who know how to take care of these serial killers well you know another thing if i'm gonna go on about true crime and so two high profile true crime cases i'll probably get in trouble for this forgive me but sarah you know chita which is btk territory and uh you know the cops the cops didn't find btk btk was uh, you know like yes they arrested him decades after his last crimes but Nobody was kept safe by the police activity to catch this serial killer. And it's similar with the Golden State Killer, right? You know, that like, um, you know, a lot of people are now familiar um, because of I'll Be Gone in the Dark, the book and the um, HBO show. But again, that's a, that was a cold case for decades. And they finally arrested a 70-year-old, 70-something on DNA, you know. So <laughs> this is a little bit of a detour, but it's like even these extreme cases of like, serial killers it's like okay well are we being kept safe like are they even able to catch these kind of criminals so i don't know that's that's kind of been on my mind um around this issue of, of the representation but it's also important for you know crime to just be treated as this like stable thing that cops are here to keep us safe from but the reality is like falling american crime rates including falling american murder rates right that's like a reality but also, and again, capitalism, why does crime happen in the first What is the crime that's being punished? I just want to talk about primarily like rape and murder as though that's what people are in, in, in prison for. And, um, you know, we can talk about those things, but we also need to talk about 
um, drug crimes, right? All of which, uh, you know, if drug addiction were treated as a medical issue rather than a criminal issue, and if drug recreational drugs were, were legalized, um, none of this would be an issue and millions of people could be out of jail. And a lot of the other crimes that happen are property crimes, which is the crimes of prop survival, right? And then with a stratified ecosystem that empowers the bulk of people while grotesquely enriching, you know, the Jeff Bezoses of the world. Right. And so those classes of crime, which are like what most people are in prison for, are the reality. And that's that's capitalism. Sarah, do you want to say anything? Yeah, I, I'm thinking a little bit about um, part because of what you said, Sarah, about the representation of pen palling and sort of like this narrative about um, incarcerated people or incarcerated men specifically preying on vulnerable and innocent women on the outside. Um, and sort of that coupled with what David said about uh, the explosion of true crime on oxygen network um, and sort of like um, true crime and crime and propaganda shows that are pitched towards specifically women. I'm thinking also about like Law and Order SVU um, and just thinking about the way that I think these representations also serve to perpetuate a specific kind of like white femininity and womanhood um, that exists to be protected from this like vague evil, um, which we know historically, right, has been been represented as like black men specifically. Those representations are always close at hand, um, if not explicitly, but in the hearts and souls of all Americans. Yeah, there's something about uh, these representations that also has to do with like the maintenance of white womanhood specifically um, and like womanhood as needing to be protected and preserved for the maintenance of white supremacy. And actually I say too, like part of the work in working with people on the outside who often, many of them are not directly impacted. They've never been in relationship with someone who is incarcerated. Um, and so, the, and the truth is that people who are in prison are very lonely and isolated and they often are looking for a romantic connection. <laughs> and like, we don't blame them. We don't have a judgment about that. And we encourage all of our pen pals to be clear and to set clear boundaries about nature of our relationship with our pen pals, right? Um, because that's what you do when you're in a relationship with a full, complicated human being is you have to negotiate setting boundaries. Um, and so I think part of like the work that we often have to do with people um, and, and specifically like women who are writing to incarcerated folks is address this fear that comes up for them that is inculcated as a result of so many representations like this of like, even though we use a PO box that is the return address for all of our letters. So pen pals on the inside, unless our, someone on the outside specifically and intentionally shares their home address, like their incarcerated pal never has their house. Even though many of our incarcerated pen pals are serving life sentences um, or close to life sentences. And so 
Um, many of them, you know, are not going to get out or they're going to get out in many years, even though there is this radical power difference in the relationship between someone who's incarcerated and someone who's in the free world, people still have this fear when they get a letter that is like at all datey or like seems like maybe is trying to have a romantic connection. Um, it, it, this fear gets stirred up in people sometimes. And so a lot of our work is like helping people to work through that and to understand how to actually set clear boundaries that are humanizing for both people. Wow, thank you for all of that. If I could talk about BTK for like five seconds, I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, I'm so glad you brought that up because Okay, so I'm from Wichita and I like remember when he came back, I don't know, like the second or third time and he was like leaving clues for the police in cereal boxes at like random stop signs outside of Wichita. It was very strange. Like I remember seeing this on the news and the way he got caught, like you were saying, David, like it wasn't from some great police work where they solved the riddle and got the guy it was literally a fluke he was like hey if I send you <laughs> essentially like if I send you this flash drive like will you be able to, <laughs> to know who I am and, the and he sent it from his church and it had his name on it so he gave he gave himself away that's what that's yeah exactly exactly and so <laughs> sorry it's just so funny because it like it's just kind of ridiculous like dude this is not you don't know how computers work <laughs> anyway not to laugh about murder um but <laughs> i'm so glad that you brought all that up because yes it's always like about capitalism too it's never like what kind of trauma did this person go through like with poverty with you know lack of access and resources it's always like oh this person is terrible because this is who they are and also, Sarah, what you were saying about white feminism, I mean, yes, absolutely, because just look at, like, who are the leading people in, like, these true crime podcasts. It's all white women, and they all maintain, just like you were saying, like, this white carcel feminism that is so toxic and terrible, and I will get off my high horse. Maeve, <laughs> please, <laughs> I know you wanted to say something. <laughs> No, it's definitely related to what you were saying, the, the white feminism and Sarah, what you were saying too, um, about humanizing, uh, you know, the victims or people who are victims of the carceral state in the prison industrial complex. Um, and I, I'm thinking about some media that might subvert uh, some of the narratives or might resist propaganda. I'm thinking specifically about Orange is the New Black, which uh, I felt like when it first came out, uh, tried to challenge some of the propaganda, you know, by making really nuanced, complicated characters, by centering women's stories, and especially as the series progressed, um, centering stories of women of color and making cops or um, wardens the villains, or at least uh, villain adjacent, <laughs> uh, and then developing their characters and showing that they are, you know, fleshed out human beings who are complicated and uh, are are kind of beholden, I guess, is the word to. Uh, to this to the system so I was just wondering what you think and like looking back you know if I rewatch the first season you know 10 years later uh I I'm sure there would be some issues right you know it's not a perfect show and I remember seeing some things that made me go well 
I don't know. But uh, I'm thinking, you know, about if there's any media that you've seen that subverts or challenges um, the idea of propaganda, the idea of justice, in quotes, uh, as we know it through the system. And if so, or if not, like what you think our media should do to address some of these stereotypes and these um, impressions that we have of police and prisons. Go for it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think, oh, gosh, I wish that there were more. I wish that there were more. I think, you know, I also watched Orange is the New Black, um, the first, I think, two seasons, and agree that there, that there was, like, some work that was done in that show, especially, I think, just the fact of, like, Centering women's um, experience in prison, um, I think, is important because there is an idea still that um, only men have uh, experience in prison, or that prison is primarily a men's issue. Even though women being incarcerated at a faster rate right now than men, um, so I think that in and of itself was important um, in Orange and New Black. We're like late to the party watching Lovecraft Country right now. We're like in episode, we just finished episode four last night. Um, and we've been sort of talking about that versus Get Out. And like, obviously there's a lot of influence um, on the show of Get Out. Um, and so first thing, because we've been talking about Get Out, like when you asked about media that subverts representation of cops, especially at the scene that flashed in front of my mind was like the end of Get Out where like his friend who works for um, the TSA. TSA comes in the TSA cop like mobile, you know, and like you think first, like you're so afraid that it's gonna be some, like now at the end of all of this, now gonna have to see a uh, spectacular black death by police murder right um and then it's like no it's like this great reveal and like got you you know where it's his friend um so i don't know if that answers your question but that's also <laughs> i thought about that moment yes that's great i i'd also like to make a plug for lovecraft lovecraft country it's so good um yeah and i think too it's important that you know, both of those, I think, yeah, I'm pretty sure both of those are directed by Black people. And so it's like, thank you for giving better representation and better narratives um, and pushing against, you know, propaganda. Anyway, but I yeah, think... I was going to add also just, uh, this isn't a TV show, but it's a graphic novel that I really like. It's called Big Black. Um, and it's about the Attica uprising um, that, you know, just the anniversary just passed. And uh, the the person whose nickname was Big Black was the security guard during the upper. And so it, it you know, he sent a story and it, it centers his experience of the Attica uprising and, you know, as a result of these horrible conditions and abuses in that prison, followed by the, the mass murder of, uh, of uh, inmates as well as uh, hostages by uh, New York police at the behest of Governor Rockefeller, who's also 
responsible for the Rockefeller drug laws, which are among the worst drug, the beginning of the really bad drug laws in this country. Um, so anyway, that's like a really cool uh, sort of popular text um, unfolding some of that history and with a, an incarcerated person at the center. So I would just suggest that too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for adding that. All of this kind of like begs the question, like, what do we do about this? Like, even though there are some problems with a lot of these shows, like there's still some good parts and it's like, do we completely like boycott it or do we watch it with a critical eye or like, where do y'all think the line is with that? Um, well, Sarah, we have to destroy capitalism. Um, so let's focus on that. Um, day to day, uh, if it helps you to like watch some TV, um, then that's okay. Um, don't beat yourself up, but don't watch too much TV and don't, you know, believe everything you watch. <laughs> um, I guess that would be my suggestion, you know, <laughs> there. Yeah, I agree. I think that ultimately, um, I don't think that uh, your choice to watch an episode or two of your favorite true crime documentary series, um, ultimately, it's not the most consequential political decision, uh, especially right now. Um, but you have to watch, we have to watch these things with a critical eye. Um, whose interests are being furthered and um, whose stories are being told and being left out um, from all these representations. I guess there's also going to be a new movie about Fred Hampton. Um, so, you know, who was the Black Panther leader who was assassinated by the Chicago police in his bed. Uh, it's a really notorious story. And that movie is forthcoming maybe even this year. Um, but in terms of like what, you know, Sarah was just saying about like nourishing ourselves with um, stories and media that are about people who are victims of police violence. I also think, you know, Sarah and I were in Oakland for a number where Oscar Grant was murdered by a policeman. So there's, um, you know, Fruitvale Station, which is a film about Oscar Grant's life. Um, so, but, you know, with the Fred Hampton movie, you know, he, you know, the Panthers were targeted by both, you know, city and state and federal government. Um, so, you know, it's always interesting. And I grew up, you know, watching the X-Files too. And of course, you know, that harkens to the name of your podcast, but it's like, you know, these are FBI characters and it's like the FBI is responsible for pro and the fascination of different people, um, but also the subversion of a lot of movements and, you know, uh, that kind of thing continues. So we need to continue to pay attention to it. Definitely. So as we're winding down our interview a little bit, uh, we know that this is very life-giving work prison ministry, prison abolition, it's so necessary, but it can also be very hard. Um, and I, I would think frustrating at times too, uh, given what we've talked about. We are wondering how you take care of yourselves, you know, while you're working, how do you stay spiritually fulfilled? What gives you hope during these times, whether it's reading or talking to folks, meditating, uh, what kind of advice can you give for other people who are in social justice ministry? Yeah, thank you so much for asking that. I would say actually that being in touch with people is actually one of the most sustaining things. Mm -hmm. Like prison is depressing. There's all kinds of, you know, that's all true. Getting letters um, from people. And I just, I 
within reach. This card I got, which is a hand-drawn card, um, all of that's hand-drawn. Yeah, it's amazing. And we get beautiful art like this all the time. And inside this card, this is like, this is from a men's uh, dorm where they can correspond with one person. So they basically just filled it out. Everybody in the dorm is like, thank you. You know, so we get stuff like that and it just really makes our day. Um, so that's that's a big part of it. And we also, you know, that's part of why I want to draw other people into the ministry and encourage your listeners to get in touch with us if you want a pen pal, because that's very life-giving. But, you know, as pastors, I think we would say first, last, and always is prayer. Um, which could sound like a corny answer, but it's totally true. Um, have to pray first thing in the morning, last thing at night, and hourly in between um, to get through, but also to have strength. And then sleep enough, eat enough, don't spend too much time on the internet, uh, get outside, exercise. It's all obvious stuff. We can just forget it in the, in the press of life. You want to add anything? Yeah, I would say in addition to all of that, uh, David and I are also artists. Um, and so nourishing our creative practice um, is also a big part of how we take care of ourselves um, and one another. Yeah, and we have an eight-month-old, so playing with the baby, I recommend. <laughs> I'm really glad that you you mentioned art too, because that's so that's so life-giving and can be such um, an important spiritual practice, but isn't. I think generally one of the first things that we that we mentioned when you're when we were like rattling down the you know spiritual practices. <laughs> so thank you thank you for bringing that up. Um, so finally, what um, where can where can people find you? Where can like people get in touch with the pen pal if if this has really um, if the spirit has has really moved in them and hearing about your work? Um, where can they find you? We're so glad you asked, Sarah. Thank you. Um, we probably the best first stop is abolitionapostles.org. We finally got a website together. So that has a lot of our introductory material um, and links of all kinds to different resources. Um, so that's abolitionapostles.org. And people can also just write us at abolitionapostles at gmail.com um, and get directly in touch that way. We're on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, Facebook and Instagram as Abolition Apostles and Twitter as Abolition Church. Um, and we also have a variety of ways to plug in, um, you know, including our church, right? So we have a, our church is the Apostles Fellowship. So we welcome anybody who wants to be in the service with us. We meet um, every Sunday at two uh, central time on Zoom. So it's available to you wherever you are in the country. Um, and if you get in touch with us at Abolition Apostles at Gmail, we'll be happy to send you the link. We're studying the Gospel of John right now. We also have a Wednesday Bible study. Um, and then we also have a weekly um, Abolition Apostles uh, political education and orientation meeting, which is at 3 p.m. Central, also on Zoom. So that's an opportunity to learn more about the ministry, um, get some information about the logistics of the pen paling. And we have a regular um, slot for our presenter. Um, today, we're actually going to be hearing from Bill Quigley, who's a lawyer in New Orleans who wrote a law review article on why Angola, Louisiana State Penitentiary must be closed. Um, so uh, that we're really excited about that. Uh, and uh, we have a every week on different um, prisoners and prison abolition. So those are um, some of the ways to connect. Um, Sarah, do you have anything you want to add? In addition to everything that David just talked about, we are leading a 
book group on the fall of the prison, uh, which is a book that was written in 1993 by this guy named Lee Griffith. Uh, that's biblical perspectives on prison abolition. So it's a relatively like early book um, that's arguing for prison abolition from a specifically biblical perspective. Uh, so we're excited to be reading it in community and um, that book group meets on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Central, um, again, on Zoom and we'll be continuing um, through the end of October. So there's four more weeks um, of that series and then the recordings will be available on the Abolition of Hustles YouTube channel <laughs> after um, <laughs> after the series concludes. Awesome. Yay. And I will also be there. I was there at the first one. That's 10 cool. out of 10. Would recommend. Come hang with us. <laughs> um, that's awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, well, it was such a delight to have y'all on here. Um, it was such a riveting conversation and it was such a blessing to have y'all on here. It was it's fantastic. It's a blessing to connect with you both. Thank yes. you so much for having us. We really appreciate it. Thank you both. Thank you. Um, y'all can check out Mystics and Mulder on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. Um, our website is mysticsandmulder.com. Uh, we have a resource guide where we can put a lot of the things that we've talked about today on there, um, get connected. Um, we have an email and a Patreon as well to support um, our continued conversations. Um, and a special thanks to Motion for our music. You can find her on Spotify and wherever else you find your music. Thank you, everyone.